Welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the Mobile of Satellite Technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Oh, not too shabby, thanks, Ed. Um, what have I got to say? Uh, I stopped drinking. Uh, I know. Well no done. Uh, thank you. I no longer drink. Uh, I'm only a couple of weeks into it, but feeling the benefit. Have I started doing anything else particularly healthy yet? No, but <laughs> that will come. Um, yeah, no, I think that's, yeah. How are you? I, I'm good. I've had a interesting couple of days um, whereby uh, a series of events led to me almost being completely locked out of my apartment. So to kind of uh rewind it back on tuesday i had to uh drive to uh, a dentist to get my um invisalign braces or aligners uh, installed i have uh somewhat uh skewy teeth um particularly on the bottom row and they've kind of not been a problem for, for recent years but i went for an appointment a couple of weeks ago and they basically said yeah you should probably get these sorted out they're just kind of they're just stabbing all your other teeth and it's probably going to be a problem. There's just a knife fight in my mouth, and uh, <laughs> they need to put a stop to it. So I said, okay, that's fine. And um, so Tuesday, I, I went up and got um, the, the the things fitted. For people who don't know, they're like basically like plastic coverings to go over your teeth uh, that you wear for like 22 hours a day. I'm taking them out for the moment for the purposes of recording because I wouldn't. <laughs> it would there'd be a lot of lisping if I was uh, recording with them in. And they basically just kind of like yank your teeth into place. Uh, and it's a very weird um, process, but um, hopefully it'll have a good outcome. But anyway, I, went, I drove to the, the dentist to get that done. As I was driving along, I noticed that my air pressure in one of my tires had like fallen dramatically. So after I had been to the dentist, I filled it. And then the next day I had to you know, do grocery shopping or something. I got in and the same tire had dropped like down to the level it had been before I filled it in. So I thought, okay, that's probably some some puncture or something so on saturday uh i drove to the garage to a garage uh and left my car there for them to look at it and um it was near where my parents live so i thought you know i'll spend the day with my parents while i wait for the car to get fixed and then they called me and they said um yeah uh, the tires need to be replaced there's a nail in one of them and the others are all just really old so you should probably get them replaced anyway i said okay fine um but also your brakes are pretty shot uh, so you should probably get those replaced as well it'll be a couple of days and i thought okay that's not ideal but i can you know my i can i can borrow a car from my mum because uh, you know she she has one that she doesn't necessarily need all the time so that'll be fine and so, you know, thought, okay, cool. That's not really a problem. I mean, it's a problem in that, you know, I'm going to be out like a grand or something, but um, better than the car falling apart on me. So I went to, so I was just kind of like, you know, watching TV or something for the rest of the day. And then it got to about 6 p.m. And then I suddenly like sat bolt right up and thought, I don't have my house keys because they're on my car keys. And I thought when I left my car keys with the garage, that I was going to be picking it up in like two hours time uh, and the garage is now closed. <laughs> so 
I'm not sure if I can get back into my apartment at all. And then I remembered, oh, wait, when I, you know, when I moved into that apartment, I got some spares and I'm pretty sure I gave them to my parents to look after just for the, this exact eventuality. And so like went searching through some drawers in my parents' house and we found a set of keys, but we weren't 100% sure if they were the keys to my apartment or like the keys for their old house because they moved a few years ago. And so today I kind of drove all the way back down to my apartment with these spare set of keys and, you know, just didn't know, trepidatious the entire time, the entire like hour drive thinking this is going to be a massive waste of time if these are the wrong set of keys and sort of like walked up the steps, got to the front door, put them in, turned it. It's the right set of keys. I can get back into my apartment and uh, everything is like more or less good. I'm still going to have to go and pick up my car in a couple of days, but like the last 24 hours since realizing, oh, fuck, I don't have my car keys has been just me trying to think of different contingency plans. Like, okay, well, if the keys don't work, then uh, I can go to the garage first thing Monday morning and you know, ask them if I can pick the keys up and then I can drive down to my apartment and then start work a little late and just kind of like, you know, in the way that you do when you just overthink things the way that I do. Um, oh, but you can't just, help it. Like you say, you, you're constantly sort of updating your contingency plans and it's a lot of, mm-hmm. uh, it's a lot of uh, uh, cognition. That's your, yeah, your cogs turning. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that, it's, a, it's all kind of like ended well enough and then like sometime this week I'll go and pick up my car and, and everything. But yeah, it was, it was just a very uh, chaotic kind of like 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then all along, you know, you and I were talking about the experience of having Invisalign earlier before we started recording. At the same time, like, I've got this this plastic thing in my mouth that is, like, slowly moving my teeth around and just I'm constantly aware of it and constantly feeling, like, a low-level tension and pain, which, you know, really just kind of adds to the kind of, like, extremely low-stakes, uncut-gems energy of the last day for me. <laughs> hey i'd watch that call, call the safties <laughs> yeah like you know i i'm cheaper i'll say this i'm cheaper than sandler <laughs> uh and also it's already in a sunny location here so like you don't have to worry about having to fly me to a <laughs> to a nice place so we'll go on to the news for this week and i think truly there was no bigger news story this this week nothing that like reverberated through the many facets of popular culture that i follow like the news that one chris pratt is going to be playing mario it's a him he is going to be playing mario in the animated mario movie that is coming out towards the end of next year which is being done by uh, illumination the minions people and uh, this has been kind of in the works for a long time, obviously, and this was like the first major update on it. And I, I it was just, it was very, very funny because I was watching um, the Giant Bomb live stream of them watching the Nintendo event where this was announced. And it was just really funny watching them just lose their minds at that piece of casting and then also just then looking at Twitter afterwards and just seeing there were every single person... I knew who knows any knows anything about movies or video games, just being completely befuddled 
by the choice of Chris Pratt to play Mario, one of the... I mean, like, on one level, I can kind of understand it because Chris Pratt's kind of a cipher <laughs> and Mario is not not the most personality-filled character, has to be said. Like, all anyone knows about him is he's Italian. But at the same time, like, there just seems... There's just something fundamentally very kind of, like, boring or wrong. I don't know about that, that, that choice. I like to think that Mario has... And, and excuse me for saying this, Ed, I think you're doing Mario a bit of a disservice there. I think he has more more character to him in that, you know, he's a trained plumber. Um, mm-hmm. He um, has a great line of dungarees. He, he, he likes True. coordinating. I mean, I don't know whether Illumination were basically like, these characters have dungarees. Who's the next IP that wears dungarees? We'll just flip through all of them. Um, mm-hmm. he's, he's pretty determined to uh, save people. He's good at jumping. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas Chris Pratt is more, it's Sammy, a homophobe. So, <laughs> ooh, yeah, big, big yikes from me. Although, kudos, Anya Taylor-Joy, you couldn't get a human being who looks more like Princess Peach without augmentation, mm. I think. So that's interesting. Yeah. But look at what we could have won, Ed. If you've already got Charlie Day... As Luigi, mm. surely you get Danny DeVito as Mario. No, good, good working class socialist that he is. Also supporting uh, IATSE, which we'll discuss uh, very shortly. God, yeah, it's just like I saw because I'm always on Twitter. That's something else I need to probably uh, take a break from <laughs> um, in terms of toxic substances. But someone said something very acute, astute. Uh, which was, it's not that there aren't any new ideas, it's just that Hollywood isn't buying any new ideas. Mm. And I think Chris Pratt is now as close to, like, Hollywood royalty as they come in the modern day and age, because, of course, his father-in-law is a former uh, governor of California, um, Mm. quite a big deal in, in the films himself, and lover of miniature donkeys, and aren't we all? But, yeah, it's just... I don't. Oh, all right, I don't think Chris Pratt has any. I think his charisma is severely in uh, doubt. Because <clears throat> the thing is, is that he's just gone incredibly quiet on various levels, and we know that he's right. But he never used to be, and I'm just a bit. Hmm. Anyway, um, enough about who they have cast. Who who would be your ideal Mario? I mean, obviously, DeVito is a good choice. I think he would be very, very fun. Um, I am just echoing a lot of people who said this, uh, but uh, I absolutely would love to see Paul Giamatti oh, God. as Mario. Partly of that is also making me think it'd be funny if he was they, if they just did a live-action version again. But he <laughs> would be a really good choice to physically embody uh, Mario. And then yeah, and Luigi I... go on a road trip through wine country in California. <laughs> yeah, I can see it. I can see it. Yeah. And then you finally get a uh, Korean American peach. <laughs> uh, like there's just there's lots of there's lots of things that you could do with that that particular retelling of the uh, of the story. But they do but yeah. he did move sideways. It's a platformer ad, it's genius. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> yeah, I I I I guess Part, part of me also is just kind of thinking a voice actor. Yeah. Like <laughs> Billy West. Oh, He'd be good. Yeah. <laughs> um, Charles Martinet. 
who yes. does the does the the actual character. Yes. Oh God, yeah. Because someone pointed out that Chris Pratt is going to make more money from this one film, not even the franchise, than Charles Martinet ever did, and it's just mm. like God, that's just so gutting, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and that that's just it for me. Is like there is something. And this is not a new problem. This has been a problem for, for animated films for, for decades at this point. But like that idea that you have to cast someone who is a name to play a character like this when you really don't. You just need someone who can like do the voice work well. Right, and it's and... Mario. We, we know Mario. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just don't think that there is anything that you could say that Chris Pratt would really kind of like bring to that role god is he gonna do oh god he but he's just gonna be um he's just gonna be italian elon musk isn't he <laughs> i send her the rockets to space i don't pay her the taxes hey. <laughs> one of the all-time great twitter accounts <laughs> sorely missed <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah um but on the bright side i do like the idea of seth rogan as donkey kong yeah yeah that's quite fun in this pottery in every sense <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or throwing his lovely artisanal pots at Mario. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's that's coming out next year. It'll probably be all right. Like Illumination, like do okay movies. Um, and, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm not looking forward to the um, conservative Mario memes <laughs> that we'll, we'll get as a result. He's gonna have Maga on his hat now, isn't he? Oh. <laughs> Uh, and I, I have to assume that that already exists and it just makes me mad. Um, <laughs> moving on. As you, you mentioned, the um, IATSE, which uh, for people who didn't listen to last week, is the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, uh, which is this kind of like collection of unions that represent a lot of the people who are like below the line workers in the film and television industry. Um, they are sort of moving closer and closer to a possible strike and work stoppage because they're still trying to reach a a kind of like agreement with uh, producers to try and like renegotiate their contracts and just generally create better conditions in terms of working hours, in terms of pay, particularly when it comes to streaming shows. And um, the last two weeks since we last kind of like talked about that, there's been a lot of activity I've seen, at least on social media, of various in front of the camera uh, staff and writers and things like that. Uh, going to bat for them so like um, Danny DeVito as you said has kind of like spoken up uh, in favour of the IATSE um, Rob McElhaney from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and Mythic Quest and Wrexham uh, Football Club has um, spoken up about them and did a very funny video where he was kind of like talking about what they do whilst being made up by all the people who are like AA, IATSE uh, members who kind of like work on whichever show they were he was on at the time Um Tim Heidecker, I see, has, has kind of like uh, come out in, fa- uh, in favor of, you know, better results for them and potential strike. And it's just been uh, very uh, exciting to see that kind of like high profile support from um, people in the industry who have like a fair amount of name recognition and who certainly have a lot of presence on social media who can kind of give attention to the issue and, you know, are providing kind of like fairly vocal support for a potential work stoppage for people who you know are uh, I think it's it's fairly uncontroversial they have been kind of like taken advantage of by the system that currently exists in Hollywood absolutely I can't can't emphasize enough how incredible it would be 
if they are able to call a strike because I think membership is roughly 60,000 and I mean it would be incredible to actually hit them where it hurts because mm -hmm. and by them it's a very broad attack at the system and the very few people who are in, in power and it's not it reminds me a little bit of the junior doctor strike uh, that was mm -hmm. happening in the UK and is still sort of not really happening but trickling on where the most horrendous thing is when people aren't even striking for what they are due which is financial compensation but when they are striking because they are scared for their lives um, and the lives of others because I can't see how anyone can disagree with that. It, it, it's staggering how much is able to be sort of got away with even now. Um, nothing is worth something being finished if it means someone's life. I don't, <laughs> it's again, it's the thing, like, I don't know how to tell you how to care about people, <laughs> but it would be, yeah, I, um, as you can tell, it's hard to formulate words because I don't know if excited is the right word. Is this hope, Ed? Is hope <laughs> what I'm feeling right now? Well, hopefully. Hey. <laughs> so yeah, we'll uh, we'll keep an eye on that story uh, as it develops, and uh, Alex, hopefully it ends in some sort of uh, positive outcome for the IATSE and uh, its members. Uh, and that you know, some equitable arrangement can be reached. Uh, another kind of like big piece of news, and this is um, kind of picking up on a story that uh, we talked about months ago at this point, but uh, back in the, the, the heady days of last year, of the middle of the pandemic, when Warner Media announced that a lot of their movies were going to be debuting in both theatres and on HBO Max to kind of... Uh, juice uh, subscribers for that service. Um, there was a lot of grumbling from prominent filmmakers who were involved, uh, including um, Denis Villeneuve, who kind of like spoke out about it, uh, but most prominently because um, he had worked with Warner Brothers for pretty much his entire career, and he had made a series of hugely successful movies for them. Uh, Christopher Nolan kind of like spoke out and very famously said in an interview that he went to bed working for the best studio in Hollywood and he woke up working for the worst streaming service in Hollywood, um, which is still a very good line. Um, and he very kind of like publicly just basically said that he didn't want to work with Warner Brothers anymore because he didn't think that they were doing uh, right by their kind of like creative partners by springing this uh, mode of release on them and like devaluing the theatrical experience, which is obviously something that he has been kind of like dedicating a lot of his time to promoting over the last even before the pandemic um, and obviously uh, you know he had the uh, fairly um, quixotic uh, quest to try and have Tenet play in theatres for like in the middle of the pandemic which uh, didn't really work out for anyone um, but you know he, he was very vocal about that and so there's been some speculation for a while that he would be going to uh, another studio and it was announced that he will be going to Universal for his next movie, which is going to be a movie about uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer. And uh, it's just a very interesting thing to kind of see Christopher Nolan kind of like go through with what you're saying. Not that, you know, 
I like doubt it had any reason to doubt that he would go through it, but you know, like you see sometimes with in Hollywood and, and with kind of like famous people and that they'll kind of like mouth off and then nothing will really come of it. But for him to, you know, put his money where his mouth is and leave the company that he has made, I think all but like two or three of his movies with and for whom, you know, he's had this like ludicrously successful um partnership with to go to Universal who seem like they will be a better fit for him, at least in the sense that they're one of the few studios that is totally committed to the theatrical release model at this point, um, is telling, I think, of the damage that the uh, disruptors at the head of the kind of like Warner Media, uh, as it now exists, uh, have kind of done on their reputation as a studio that is kind of like meant to be good for filmmakers to work with. Uh, I mean... I think it's well documented how I feel about Mr. Nolan. I mean, fine. I guess whatever makes him happy. Uh, I think the anti-streaming is... It just sounds like throwing your toys out of the pram. Um, I love a theatrical experience as much as the next person, but I don't think they realise how classist and ableist they're being. <laughs> um, and fine, carry on living in your bubble that's okay um see how it affects the piles of money you're already sitting on it's great to be able to choose your art like that and uh stick to your own weird principles um same as when patty jenkins was you know talking to very much preaching to the choir at a convention of cinema owners and talk about the actual experience i understand people kind of getting what they're due i know we're talking about Scarlett Johansson and, and the lawsuit against Disney and sort of that change and sort of Patty Jenkins being able to sort of redo her contract and how these people feel sort of threatened and where is the money going and I'm and I'm all about people being compensated for for their work but it is also a little bit wackadoodle uh, when it's like a matter of a, another zero or two on their paychecks when I just can't stop thinking about all of the crew. Uh, photos being sent in as part of the kind of calling for a strike effort and solidarity with people uh, sleeping <clears> on the job with their earpiece in because they can't because they haven't slept and work is the most important thing and um, the fact that people are cheering that Bob Odenkirk is back on the Better Call Saul set and I'm like he's it's still very soon since he had a heart attack I don't know if <clears> I'm glad he's okay but I don't think he should be at work for a while. Um, yeah. and that the crew are all wearing Better Call Strike badges, which I think <laughs> is excellent. So, yeah, I don't know. I just, I really can't be dealing with, like, I, I love being a big culture twat and an arty wanker, <laughs> but it, it, it's very, oh, I can't hear you from your ivory tower, sort of, to me. It's like, fine, go to another big studio. Oh, well, they... They sort of pat your face that much more. And they ruffle your hair the way you like it. But yeah, Oppenheimer, sure. Let's bring it on. I bet it's going to be so different from his other films. God, I really hate Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> In case anyone wasn't clear. Ugh, sorry. Lumped. <laughs> uh, and then you uh, mentioned then the uh, Scarlett Johansson lawsuit, which uh, plays into the next story which is the announcement that Disney will be putting the rest of their 2021 movies 
in theaters and not doing their kind of like premium rental same day release thing on Disney Plus that they did for you know much of the last year, which seems to be driven by two things. One of which is the Scarlett Johansson lawsuit where you know she sued them over lost earnings um, over the release of Black Widow, and the other being the success of uh, Shang Chi, the new Marvel movie, which has which only played in theaters um, so far, and then you know will show up on Disney Plus in. Um, a couple of months time anyway and it has done uh, better than Black Widow did it has outgrossed it and seems to be you know on course to be the most successful movie of the kind of like last year of the kind of like pandemic era of uh, box office so that uh, is kind of like an interesting development in, in terms of both the ways in which you know the various experiments with how to release movies during the pandemic have played out you know disney have had like a decent success with this their hybrid model but clearly putting stuff just into theaters winds up working out better for them uh in general and then also like warner brothers have had this like have basically not put out a successful movie since they've also been playing it on hbo max because most people choose to watch it at home and um by and large it doesn't seem to be boosting their subscriber numbers, so they just seem to be kind of like shooting themselves in the foot there. Yeah, I, I, I mean, please, please refer to my previous, <laughs> previous outburst. Uh, and then finally, this week we uh, had the sad news that Willie Garson passed away. Willie Garson uh, is an actor who is perhaps best known for his role on Sex and City, where he played the character of Stanford Blatch. Uh, who also, uh, was at least in the first movie, I think, was probably in the second one as well. Um, but, you know, just kind of like a working actor who showed up in, you know, dozens and dozens of things over the, the uh, over the years and was always, you know, a really welcome presence. And based on the, you know, kind of like tributes that came out after he passed away, uh, was someone who seemed to be really uh, beloved by the people who knew him and who worked with him. Absolutely. And I think the... So Stanford Blatch and his performance is an interesting case study of someone who in their own personal life is straight but plays a gay character, which, again, not saying this is all right, because it was quite late on, but it was, you know, the late 90s when uh, when it started. Um, but I think he managed to play a character who could have very easily become a caricature with a lot of depth and heart and essentially played Stanford as someone who was quite shy, who seemed flamboyant in some ways but was actually incredibly tender and seemed like a real friend because Sex and City was not always brilliant at depicting real friendships and I think it's only really the friendship between Carrie and Miranda and Carrie and Stanford that holds any weight in reality. Um, but everyone just seemed to be so taken aback by Willie Garson's kindness, and yeah, so it was a it was a pang because when I first started watching Sex and the City, far too young, <laughs> I should not have been watching it at that age, but I did, and you just you, every girl wanted a friend like Stanford. Um, uh, so big props to Willie Garson. So we'll go on to the main topic for this week, and. It is, well, I think I'm, I'm kind of very 
generally referring to as ripoffs or particularly good ripoffs. Um, this was inspired by uh, me watching Event Horizon for the first time, the uh, other Paul Anderson's uh, kind of big movie from 1997, um, starring uh, uh, Sam Neill and Lawrence Fishburne and Jason Isaacs and a bunch of other people. Uh, it's a movie that I had been wanting to see for a long time. It was a movie that I remember my friends at school being really into, um, but like I just never got around to it. But it was like one of those movies. Gattaca was the other one where like any kind of offbeat sci-fi movie would be something that my friends would be really drawn to. Um, and like, but and I've seen uh, you know stills from. Event Horizon over the years, uh, most notably, uh, there's some rather gnarly ones of uh, Sam Neill towards the end of the movie, which uh, get shared around a lot. Um, but, you know, this was the first time watching it, and I really enjoyed it. I, I generally enjoy uh, Paul W.S. Anderson's work. Um, I think he's got a very strong uh, understanding of, of how to make camp work and how to craft, like, a striking image within material that could be uh, just, like, total, like... Uh, cynical crash and the thing about Event Horizon that you know, really struck me was that it is such a wholesale ripoff of the aesthetic of Ridley Scott's Alien um, it's the interiors of its spaceships are so clearly modelled on the Nostromo in the first movie and in the kind of like um, colonies in Aliens and it is you know, like on one level, you could kind of like ding it for that and just be like, "This is just like totally derivative." But I, I was really taken by it because I felt that it really felt like someone who is a fan of those movies and a fan of that style, wanting to kind of use it to tell their own story. And you know, crucially, I think the thing that's interesting about Event Horizon is, much as Alien is essentially a haunted house movie on a spaceship. Um, you know, this is also a haunted house movie, but it's a different kind of haunted house movie, and that is kind of very much about like possession and cosmic horror. So it's like it feels distinctly different, even though if you were to like take stills of the movie and like blur the faces of the actor and just say to someone, "Is this from Event Horizon or is this from Alien?" It would perhaps be hard to tell the difference because the debt is so so clear. So I guess what I wanted to kind of talk about in this episode is what makes a rip-off kind of uh, palatable or acceptable or, or what kind of makes a good rip-off something that you could watch and even if you think this is totally just cribbing the style of something else or the tone or whatever but it still like fundamentally works mm. I think before we dive deep into that we're not talking about mockbusters mm-hmm. yeah. yeah like just a quick honourable mention to Mockbusters, in particular the Asylum uh, of Straight to Video. I mean, what do they do? They just go straight to streaming now. I wonder if they're still because it seems like they're still going. But yeah, I I occasionally see people will make reference to things like I think there's one from a couple of years ago called Velocipastor, <laughs> which is about a, like a priest who fights with dinosaurs. Oh, um, I don't. Oh, I thought it was going to be dinosaur pasta. Okay, oh. um, I'll, I'll take that, but. Yeah, uh, but I see. I occasionally will see people talk about that, and I don't know if that's an asylum one, but that seems to be one that people seem to be quite taken with, and you know, seems to be very much in that vein of just kind of you know 
cheapo sci-fi movie, you know, made with, uh, you know, presumably recycled assets from, you know, whatever <laughs> pro- whatever uh, software allows you to quickly generate a dinosaur. Oh, man, I'll have to dig that out, slash download that software for myself. I think my favourite <laughs> from the asylum, though, has to be Snakes on a Train, um, mm-hmm. which... Uh, <laughs> which came out three days earlier than its IP sake, Snakes on a Plane. And I think yeah. it possibly has the best opening sentence of a plot summary on Wikipedia ever. Uh, so I'm just going to read it out quickly for everyone. Although taking the same basic idea from Snakes on a Plane, bracket, many deadly snakes loose on a claustrophobic high-speed means of transport, close brackets, the background <laughs> story of how the snakes end up on the train differs. Um... Cool. <laughs> Glad that the basic idea. I love that that is how the basic idea is phrased. And I know I'm sort of saying this uh, uh, sort of facetiously, but to be quite serious, I think that is sort of a, a, a scratches at what we're talking about in terms of what makes a rip off a good rip off. And I think it can have that same essential premise: many snakes loose on a high speed means of transport. Um, for more than one person, <laughs> I think should probably be added, uh, for multiple people. Um, I think, because the thing about Event Horizon as well is that I guess what is different about Ripoff is that it's it's too close in terms of being a contemporary of whatever it's ripping off um, to be to claim for it to be influenced by. I think, I think it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of because you wonder how much of it is again what is Hollywood in the market for and what are they buying because you do see that a lot in terms of like when rights become available and like you know when we had those two Alexander the Great films and stuff that all kind of seems to happen in the same year and people are clearly like ah oh, dang if only we sort of like spoke to each other about these sorts of things um, mm. maybe we wouldn't all be releasing similar stuff because again, people get confused, and that's what uh, Mockbusters and the Asylum really capitalised on, which I don't think is going to happen so much anymore. Funnily enough, thinking of streaming, um, because it is a little bit easier to have a reference to search for the actual film that people are talking about. Because obviously, the genius of Snakes on a Train is that you would <laughs> think, oh, maybe I misheard Snakes on a Plane. Snakes on a Plane. That would be ridiculous. Snakes on a Train is a much more believable premise. It does also feature uh, Mayan possession, so maybe not. But anyway, you don't you don't know that at the time. And I'm trying to think of like, I think it's such a particular niche sort of film, the rip off, because it's not the same as a cash in, um, mm-hmm. or kind of um, a general genre or style. Because thinking of someone like Adam McKay, for example, and how he sort of like veers he's sort of veering into that sort of like, oh no, I'm a serious satirist now with like, oh, uh, Christian Bale and the big short and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I guess the thing is for me, it's also not, speaking of streaming, it's not the same as kind of like those endless Christmas cookie cutter romance films. Like, Mm -hmm. because that's a factory issue of, same same but ever so slightly different i'm trying to think of sort of a more i think also as an avid rom-com watcher it can feel quite hard within the genre i feel like there are sort of rip-offs there in that some people are sort of trying to be 
and Nancy Myers, or there's just a general sort of gloss over things that kind of attaches them. But I think returning yeah. to your example of like Event Horizon and Alien and Ridley Scott, I think the story is different enough. You know, because it's got such a heavy dose of like Solaris and like, oh, it's mm. really your own sort of psychology. Like it, like it is essentially the child of Solaris and Alien. Yeah. Um, but I think, and the thing, you know, there's a lot of John Carpenter in there as well. Um, but you're right. If you were to sort of take like certain frames, you're like, uh, is this the same? <laughs> but I think as long as there's something. I mean, maybe this just, maybe I'm being overly simplistic, but there has to be something quite fundamental about the plot, I think, that, mm. that means you can be like, oh, okay, cheeky. Because again, like, we, we're using ripoff again in like a non derogatory sense either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not trying to be pejorative in that. Not, use at, all. Term, no. not at all. And neither am I. It's more a kind of it's kind of the gift to the algorithm as well, isn't it? Where it's like, oh, if you like that, you'll like this. And again, uh, kind of, as I was sort of chatting a couple of episodes ago, that I'm leaning into like 90s thrillers because mm. for some reason I find them immensely comforting. And that's all like, I mean, that is very much kind of turn it slightly one way and then crank it out. You know, it's not even like, its own particular franchise like if i sort of squint like along came a spider is also double jeopardy is also <laughs> but, but there's something there's something heavier connecting them than simply genre you know mm. yeah i think i think the the example with like rom-coms i think is interesting because i think there is also that sense that you know you can get a lot of movies that are kind of um, spiritual ripoffs, where like mm. some movie comes out that's like a real big hit, like you know, like a Pretty Woman or When Harry Met Sally, that really comes out and really makes an impact, and then there almost becomes like a buyer's market or a free feeding frenzy where studios are just kind of like, okay, just do more of that, and suddenly they like just buy up every single script. So I think that's what you kind of see in the early. Late eighties, early nineties, I feel like that is what fed like the rom com boom is. That was just kind of okay, try and crack and crank out as much of that sort of stuff as you can. And that's you know, you get a load of newly minted stars. Like I think that's you know, like Sandra Bullock, I think her career kind of like really benefited from a lot of those kind of movies all coming out very, very quickly in that space of time and people just like thinking, Okay, we need the most kind of like charming appealing uh people to star in these movies as possible yeah kind of really tapping into that charisma and just thinking about mm. the career Sandra Bullock's had like it is incredible like I you know she is so much the kind of the mainstream face of the 90s mm -hmm. yeah. yeah which is kind of amazing given that she is I mean she's beautiful but she's not kind of who you immediately think of as like a Hollywood starlet and I think a lot of it was she... because you know she didn't really have she was just working all the time and her private life wasn't <laughs> up for grabs and she just kind of like thinking about i mean practical magic 28 days uh premonition um she can kind of she can kind of do it all i think it's just action i haven't really seen her in but she's like i think a very gifted uh physical comedy actress um mm. yes i'm a i'm a standra <laughs> come on <at me. laughs> i think 
she is like one of the few actresses who kind of like operate in that mode where they can kind of really pull off the kind of like they're you know they're not that attractive like part of the first part of a rom-com before they get like yeah. the, the glow up yeah, like yeah. obviously she is still in- incredibly beautiful but there is something she can really sell the idea that you know she could be like a normal person out in the world that people wouldn't necessarily take notice of that's, that's why, why like Miss Congeniality works. Oh my god, so well because like, she can act because it's all about mm. it's, it's all how she carries herself in her body. Um, yeah, and then you know her posture changes and and again I think the wonderful thing about Miss Congeniality is that she doesn't immediately look comfortable when she has a makeover. She yes. actually carries through her character arc because she's a genius and I love her. Um, mm, yeah. yeah, it wasn't you know that Oscar wasn't really for the blind side. Let's all be honest. Yeah, and I think as well, there's often that kind of... I think you see it a lot now, less in terms of films, but in terms of actors. Because I've been seeing mm-hmm. a lot of like, oh, wait, this person looks a bit like this person, but is cheaper because they're less... <laughs> they're not quite on the A-list yet. So I see Margot Robbie and Samara Weaving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. used an awful lot. And it's... Um, oh, is it Chad Michael Murray and... No wait, it's Lo- uh, Tom Hardy and Logan something. Oh God. Oh, Logan Marshall Green. Yes, thank you. Ah, oh, so yeah. Yeah. So I think it's happening more with faces because someone's like, oh, mm-hmm. I want a Tom Hardy type, but we can't afford Tom Hardy. Yeah, like that kind yeah. of thing. Tom Hardly is I'm <laughs> taken thinking of Logan Marshall Green, um, which is unfair. He is very good. He's very good in the oh. movie Upgrade, which I like a lot. But, but yeah, like, it's, it's just right. hard. It's hard not to look at him and think, you look a lot like Tom Hardy, and I kind of feel like you're getting cast in a lot of movies because they think, mm, people will see you on the poster at the call their eye and think, oh, Tom Hardy, cool. Yeah, because I think a lot of it is is playing on people's kind of, uh, our uh, brains constantly working on sort of hermeneutics and, and things like um, the, the path of least resistance. It, it is that mm. kind of like, oh, I swore it was Tom Hardy. Oh, well, it looks enough like Tom Hardy. What do you, what do you want? It's kind of, you know, your, your regular Coke or your diet Coke. It's, it's Coke Zero, actually. Oh, God, it almost looks exactly the same. Um, and, yeah, I'm trying to think. Yeah, rom-com in particular, I think, is because, you know, it's it's so firm in terms of genre. But thinking of, like, I think I think because we now are in um, kind of streaming landfill, um, mm. it's hard not to see. Even I mean, even just Netflix, it's like, do your originals department talk to each other at all? Because mm. I feel like a lot of the YA stuff, as much as I really like to all the boys I've ever loved before, and I know that's um, adapted from a book. But the half of it as well, which I absolutely loved. Yeah, great movie. One like two really excellent films, and I'm so glad for them. But it also does feel a little bit bit like, are you just kind of looking for something to keep people on Netflix because they might be in the mood for a double bill, and mm. it's enough like the other one. And I and I want that sometimes, you know. Like I say, I am on this '90s thriller kick, but. And and we are we are so behind in terms of young Asian American representation. I'm not trying to belittle that. Like we've had oodles and oodles of oh god, um that's it. That was the thing I was thinking of. 
are the novelist, the American novelist, and it's white people nearly kissing. <laughs> every, every single poster is like the most heterosexual <laughs> couple, and it's all like the vow, the promise, <laughs> always yeah. you, never anyone else. Do you know what I mean? And and that is often like um, I think not as kind of blatant as something like Pure Flix, but that is a lot of the kind of here's a lot of conservative money being pushed into things. I think yeah, um, and all these kind of like tear jerkers, and again, a lot of them based on books because it's the cinematic equivalent of your airport paperback. It's like, I just, mm. want, I just want something to read that will kind of keep me entertained that I don't have to think too much about at all. And I would like another round, please. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, with books as well, like that's definitely something I notice. Like if I go into a Barnes & Noble, there'll be a, a table that'll be laid up and like all of the books will be like a woman in period clothing in profile looking out over that's a city. Cool. And like that's just a design they've decided like apparently really works, and so every novel needs to have it. And I think that I think that's definitely again, if we're we're talking about like market forces driving ripoffs, there is definitely a case where something hits, something makes a kind of like a big splash in some way, and then everyone immediately try tries to kind of like uh, maneuver towards that. Um, I think that's something that you definitely see in sort of like the late 90s, early 2000s, when, you know, everyone, to go back to a movie we talked about in the last episode, uh, The Matrix was a huge hit, so everyone had to suddenly start using bullet time, everyone had to kind of have the kind of like goth electro soundtrack, and then you end up with things like, you know, Equilibrium, which... uh, I really like Equilibrium. It's good, it's definitely a movie that I have seen a lot, um because it was one of those ones that used to be on Sky Movies really late at night all the time. And it has, like, a lot of it. Like, it's got the style of, of Matrix and, you know, the gun carter and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, there's bits of Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit 451 in there and all that sort of stuff. There's lots of stuff to like about it, but it is, like, one of the more transparent um, Matrix rip-offs you can find. Yeah, for sure. Like, down to the coats. <laughs> it's like, okay, I get you, and, and you need to plug yourself out of, like the thing that everyone's saying the way you have to be and you have to feel and you have to break through but yeah i i like i do like equilibrium and i think there's enough in it to keep it um keep it different and i think because it focuses on a certain kind of martial arts and it doesn't quite have bullet time and it's Mm. not it's not computer robots code it's yeah shady society but you're totally right by the way sorry i've just all right uh because i i'd forgotten the name earlier do yourself a favor and just google nicholas sparks posters and you will mm-hmm. see. i know it's the same guy i mean like fair play to him he's he's managed to uh hit on a formula but what a what a formula it is but yes white people nearly kissing knock yourselves away. there was definitely i want to i, I want to say I'm just going to double check. I'm pretty sure, like, Dear John, the Channing Tatum movie, that was, like, one... No, that one was based... There's, there's there's a movie, and I can't remember what it is, but there was definitely a movie that was, like, a big deal, or, like, attempted to be a big deal, where it wasn't based on a Nicholas Sparks novel, but everything about it was clearly geared towards appealing to that audience, and I'm trying to figure out which one it was. He's done so like, many. It's so hard. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. It's, like, everyone, I think, oh, that was the rip-off. Oh, no, 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 that was just... That was just one of his uh, adaptations. <laughs> but yeah, I'll try and figure that out. Um, 
Yeah, I think also uh, in terms of assessing ripoffs, one element that also kind of has to be uh, factored into it is occasionally this is in fact a legal term, <laughs> a legal consideration, because there are definitely some cases where you watch something and you think, oh, you know, this is kind of playing on or it's inspired by, you know, a previous work of art. And then uh, the lawyers get involved and they're like, no, you just copied what we did. Um, the most uh, the, kind of like the most high profile example, of this is probably The Terminator, which um, where James Cameron was sued by Harlan Ellison for saying that he had ripped off two of the episodes of The Twilight Zone that he had written Um and as such, all uh, subsequent releases of the uh, uh, Terminator have to include a credit for Harlan Ellison uh, in the credits, just basically saying inspired, inspired by, as opposed to just uh, he stole the ideas from these episodes. And then more recently, more high profile was the movie Lockout, um, which is uh, Luc Besson produced a uh, produced, uh, sci-fi movie where Guy Pearce has to break, I want to say, the daughter of the president out of a space jail? tracks which is uh a fairly blatant ripoff of escape from new york but instead of new york it's a space jail and and uh the courts agreed and uh john carpenter i think got a fairly decent settlement out of them because um they just said yeah you just you just set escape from new york in space mate um um, I love the idea that. of just like scribbling out New York and then int space jail. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> that's that's some cojones right there. Gotta say. Okay, I think I figured out which one. It was the movie The Vow. Oh yeah, which right. is is not based on a Nicholas Sparks movie, but it stars Channing Tatum and Rachel McAdams, who were both in Nicholas Sparks adaptations. And like there, the poster for that is exactly what we're talking about, of two like attractive people nearly kissing. And that to me is like, that's such like a perfect example of a pure kind of like Nicholas Sparks movies are really popular. We can't, we can't let him have just like the complete domination of this market. Let's just do one of those. And star Sam Neill. Is he our rip-off king? Mm, he, he'll kind of flip between them. Uh, although I don't know if they, it would have been really good if uh, like uh, Roger Corman had got him for Carnosaur. Uh-huh. Is uh, pre, the, again, much like uh, Snakes on a Train, the kind of like rip-off of Jurassic Park that he managed to put out before Jurassic Park came out. Oh, is um, that, that going to be like putting Google into Google? It's just going to break everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also, uh, in terms of uh, Roger Corman, I think he, he he has a lot of movies that are basically that, of essentially just going like, ah, this is kind of like a thing that's popular, so let's kind of like crank out a cheaper version of it. But certainly like in the, the 60s and 70s, it's like that you could have as the second half of a double bill at a drive-thru or whatever. Um, but I think that of those, and I, I don't profess to have seen everything that American International Pictures put out because it's a lot of movies, but I, I've seen a decent number. And, and of those, I think the the best one that I've seen um, was Piranha, which um, was directed by Joe Dante and written by John Sayles and is a just like straight up just rip off of Jaws. But instead of a shark, it's a bunch of piranhas. <laughs> and... What uh, I think elevates that one is that it's very funny. Um, it's very witty. Um, there's a very, very funny moment in it where 
uh, there's like a hotel instead of a mayor it's like a hotel manager who's kind of like the villain who doesn't want people to know that oh you know by the way there's piranhas um and uh at one point he's kind of talking to someone and then someone comes up to tell him to try and tell him that uh, you know the piranhas have gotten into the pool and then he says says in a very deadpan way they're eating the guests sir <laughs> and it's just like that kind of Slightly camp, slightly knowing, very witty kind of approach to it, I think, uh, elevates that from being just a pure cynical rishbop, which it, it, you know, it kind of yeah. fairly transparently is, to being something that is clearly intended as, like, you know, a bit of fun, a little just cheeky enough to kind of get away with it. And, um, yeah, I think it, it helps, you know, Joe Dante's, like, a tremendously entertaining filmmaker, and John Sayles was a great writer. So, like, you have just the right kind of people involved with that one too imbue enough kind of like craft and humor and wit into it to make it like stand out whilst it still is like you you look at the basics of it it's, it's like this uh, craven commercialist attempt to say okay how can we draft off of the success of this industry altering success speaking of craven commercialist <laughs> it's craven commercialism I, like no lie i i'm following the sam neil trail as we speak and <laughs> i think i found a fresh one like i swear to god ed in a sort of nelson mandela effect style way i swore richard curtis wrote and directed wimbledon he did not. <laughs> he did not sam neil's mm. in it it is a working title film so i think they yeah. were like let's just rip off ourselves richard mm -hmm. needs a holiday yeah i'm i i mean i'm astounded right now <laughs> it definitely seems like something that like it has the exact sort of high high concept premise that he did a lot during that time yeah like and in a similar vein like there are so many movies from the last 23 years that you look at british movies that you look at and you just basically say Ah, yes, the new Full Monty is here. <laughs> oh, like, God, don't even get me started on... Yeah, oh, yeah. Made, so many... Made in Dagenham, Suffragette. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're just so so many. It's like, oh, you know, true life story, bunch of kind of like likeable working British actors uh, who are kind of like dependable screen presences, light comic tone, um... You know them. Tr you know a bunch of plucky nobodies whose church hall is about to be knocked down. Whatever, doing a crazy thing that kind of makes them a success. Look, um, I, yeah, I, lo I love Pride as much as the next person. It always, it mm, never, mm -hmm, it always makes mm -hmm. me cry. Never fails for me to sort of like uh, replenish my um, commitment to the cause. But I look other European, and I know we've sort of backed out of that. But stick stick with me on this in in the continent sense. Other European countries don't incessantly plough through their history for whatever little jingoistic story that they can pump out as, like, basically propaganda. It's really sad because it's not to say that there isn't some phenomenal British filmmaking going on, like, let's look at bait, let's look at makeup. Like, there's, there's so much interesting stuff happening. I will always be a champion for Daphne <laughs> forever and ever. But that's not what gets pushed and celebrated. And mm. I don't even know whether I want to go into the reasons for it. Um, but yeah, like... It's certainly not the stuff that... Sorry, it's, it's certainly not the stuff that kind of gets really 
pushed over here. No, like, no. The movies that get big in America that come from England are all in the full Monty mold. Yeah, and, you know, Downton Abbey on the big screen, just... Mm-hmm. Um, and I get it, I do, to an extent. But at the same time... Um, just Britain just keeps ripping off and playing itself <laughs> in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of, of rip-offs, we can't really talk about this without talking about the king of the rip-off, um, <laughs> Brian De Palma. Oh, Brian. Brian, Brian. Which, <laughs> this is not to denigrate him. I love Brian De Palma. He's a lunatic. I enjoy so many of his movies. But... You look at, say, Obsession, his um, just straight up remake of Vertigo near enough with the, you know some differences, but it's basically Vertigo, but with Cliff Robertson. And, you know, he, he takes so much from Hitchcock and obviously, you know, he kind of um, intensifies, I think, a lot of the image, imagery of, of Hitchcock, you know, because obviously he was working a different time he's not as restrained in terms of his use of of violence and sex as Hitchcock was um for all of his movies except Frenzy and I think that to me like one of the things if if, if nothing else kind of like the thing that really elevates him and why you look at something like Obsession and you don't just like write it off as someone just copying Hitchcock is there is such passion and love there like he obviously loves what Hitchcock meant for cinema and he loves playing in that sandbox and kind of using those tools to do whatever uh, he wants with them. And I think that for me, in, in the case of... This also goes... Tr- uh, this is also true for Event Horizon like as well. Like Paul W.S. And- Anderson was clearly like loves Alien, that's why... He, you know, ended up making Alien vs. Predator, which is not a very good movie, but he clearly, like, loved that movie and that franchise and that world and, you know, was kind of, like, really um, inspired by it. So I think, like, love goes a long way, I think, to making, you know, something more than just kind of stealing someone else's work. You know, if you have, like, genuine passion for that work and can bring your own spin to it, then that can kind of go a long way. Oh, I love Yes. Yes. So we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot of Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Lose Well by Chris Gethard, which I think is possibly a spin on Samuel Beckett's famous phrase, fail better. Um, mm. I make no bones about the fact that I really love Chris Gethard output and is sensitive and offbeat in all the right ways I'm not sure I completely agree with the undercurrent of the theme of what he's essentially trying to get across this in this book because it could be called lose well but it could also just be called work hard um, and of course he makes several references to the fact that he was bullied because when he was a kid obviously his name is literally get hard and you know, mm-hmm. children are awful and I think really what it it's not really about working hard. It's it's more about like believing in yourself. But I think it's about not denigrating his sort of working class roots and 
anywho, you know, again, for all the reasons that I, I seem to be on a theme this episode, but for all the reasons that I've already outlined, uh, you can tell why I'm a little bit sceptical of that. But um, he is just a fantastic storyteller and he manages to blend hilarious moments with like genuinely very moving bits and he's lived quite a life and continues to live it quite um and yeah it's just it's a book of essays and I'm really leaning into essays at the moment because I found it quite hard to stick to a full book because my attention span is still shot what with this whole little pandemic we've got going on so it's nice to be able to sort of read a satisfying chapter and then be able to turn the page and possibly try another without feeling like I've lost the plot because there's no plot really uh so there's nothing to lose other than lose well by Chris Gethard Ed what do you have this week I am going to recommend a video game that I played uh over the last couple of days called The Artful Escape which is the best way to describe it is it's kind of uh, imagines what if to become Ziggy Stardust, David Bowie actually had to go on a journey across the cosmos. Okay. So it's about this kid who is like meant to be the nephew of a Bob Dylan-like folk singer who is has gone to this like town or uh, is in his hometown to perform at a festival honouring his his uncle. He feels very uncomfortable about having to perform these folk songs. He doesn't really kind of see himself in that music. And then uh, an alien voiced by Carl Weathers shows up and says to him, hey, I need you to kind of come with me to this place in the sky and play uh, real great shredding riffs. (laughs) And uh, so from there, the game is kind of like a platformer where you're going through these incredible incredibly designed worlds that look very much like a prog prog rock um, album art come to life. Uh, And then mostly it's a platformer where you're kind of like traveling through those locations. And then at the end of each level, you kind of have to do a fairly simple rhythm game against, you know, an alien. And it's incredibly um, visually uh, ambitious. You know, these, the worlds are really cool and really interesting and they're all very distinct um, it's very funny. The dialogue is um, is kind of a lot of Douglas Adams esque non sequiturs, which are quite fun to and you know it's very understated. It's got a really good voice cast, as I mentioned. Carl Weathers uh, is is kind of one of the main characters. Lena Headey has a small role in it. Uh, Mark Strong also uh, does kind of has a comedy role in it, which is not something that I expect from Mark Strong. But he's very funny. Uh, um, Jason Schwartzman has a couple of roles in it. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's an Annapurna game, so like they always, you know, they can they can pull in some big talent from the world of film when they want to, um, and yeah, it's 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 very short. It only takes like three or four hours to beat, um, and it's not terribly challenging. Like the, the, there's a couple of tough platforming moments, but nothing too out of the way, and the the rhythm section bits are pretty easy. It's just like a really interesting use of video gaming as a storytelling medium. Uh, I found. And yeah, I was I was really taken with it and thought that it was uh, kind of corny in a way that really works for me. And yeah, it's just like a really strange idea done really well. And um, it is available on uh, Xbox Game Pass. So if you have that, you can just play it for free, uh, which is why I did. 
and um, I think it's like $17 if you don't have Game Pass and want to play it on another platform. Um, but yeah, like it's a fun way to spend a couple of hours, and it's really uh, interesting and, and strange. So yeah, so that is The Artful Escape. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Playground, Spotify, all the usual places. You can rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friend. It's the best way to help us grow audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.